Welcome to the Sports and Torts Podcast, your go-to podcast for entertaining conversations on sports, law, and business. This podcast is powered by the J. Stein Law Firm, a personal injury law firm in Atlanta, Georgia. And now, here is your host, Joshua Stein. What's up, everybody? How are we doing today? Did y'all enjoy Shane Lazenby last week or what? What a great guy and a great story. The only way to back up one great episode is by having another one. So she's already laughing. So that (laughs) is what we're going to do today. Joining us is my friend, Bethany Schneider. Bethany is a trial lawyer, trial lawyer, a dogs fan. Go dogs. Go dogs. Founder of Schneider Injury Law, which is about to celebrate its fifth year anniversary. Yep. And she is kind enough to join us fresh off her latest seven-figure jury verdict with another trial coming up in a few weeks. Bethany, thanks for being here. What is going on? Thanks for having me, Josh. First off, seriously, double congrats. I mean, recent big verdict, five-year anniversary, like this is good stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, um, yeah, it's a fun time. We are, you know, about to go to another trial. So my aim is to try like five to eight cases a year. So hopefully we're on our way to that. Got a big party coming up next week? Yeah, yeah. Glad you can make it. I'll be there. You know, if there's a party and there's good food and drink and a band, like, you know, my RCP is always going to be yes. Oh, yes. So we, uh, we poured some ranch waters. That's what they call it, right? We got some Casamigos, some Perrier water. I usually told you I like to do the, the uh, Topo Chico, but uh, they were out of it today. Bad on me. You know, bad planning, but the Perrier works. I mean, people love Topo Chico. They go crazy over it. It's, there's always a very low supply in all the stores. <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's great. Now, we'd also discuss maybe drinking French 75s. Oh, yes. I drink. do love a French 75 with Hendrix gin. I'm, I am a very bad cocktail maker. You know, one like this, tequila and soda water. I'm not mm. good at all the fancy cocktails. I wish I was better. Are you, are you pretty good at making cocktails I like was that? a bartender in uh, Athens, actually, City Bar, back in the day. So I had a margarita named after me, the Betharita. Okay, go on, continue. <laughs> basically, the secret was orange juice. So, I mean, basically like a Texarita. So, uh, City Bar still have that on the menu? I, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure. But, Rita, okay. uh, yeah, but anyways, I've always liked making drinks. So, right now, my go-to cocktail that I make usually is Old Fashions. Fantastic. But I just use that proof syrup that already comes all Can't get all wrong. Old, old Fashions and Manhattans. Like, I go back and forth. Like, I enjoy both of those drinks. Yeah. I also can make a lychee martini because that only has two two uh, ingredients as well. What are those two? Vodka and lychee syrup. Oh, there you go. Well, next time you're making the drinks, okay? <laughs> Very good. We're having a good time today. Again, thank you for coming. Uh, introduce yourself, background, where you're from. We, we heard that you were in Athens for a little bit, but uh, tell everybody who, who you are. Bethany Schneider. I grew up outside of Nashville, Tennessee in a town called Franklin. Um, you know, grew up there, went to school there, then, you know, wanted to go not too far from home, but uh, do a big Southern school. So I went to the to Georgia, um, enjoyed all that Athens has to offer, the Greek life, football, now a season ticket holder for the dogs. Um, so I've enjoyed that, the back-to-back season. What's your attendance like been like the last couple of years for these big games? The big games usually I, I make, and um, of course this year I decided to sell my Tennessee tickets instead, and I was kind of glad when it was raining that I made like $2,000 on the tickets. Roll those to LA? <laughs> right. No, I didn't make it to LA because I went to Indianapolis last year, which I saw you mm-hmm. um, there. So I did. I was like, I don't think there's anything that can top this. Um, I went to the SEC championship here um, this year. But. It's funny. We were in Indianapolis, and it was 8 degrees and snowing and freezing. And we're like, well, L.A. next year is going to be beautiful. And it was raining right. the whole time. Then it was so, horrible weather. Right. So, right. so who knows what Houston, if we're so lucky to, to be maybe Locust or something. We'll yeah, I did make it to the Florida-Georgia game this year because I'm dating a Gator. So um, I guess found out that it's one of the last years in, in Jacksonville. Yeah, they're going to change that up. I don't know the exact deal they're going to do, but it sounds like that game is going to be one of the past, which is, I mean, I have, my, I have mixed emotions. I mean, I've got, got such great memories from going there 20 years ago. I've yeah. not been in probably this, a decade. This was the first time I went since college. Um, so it was pretty cool, but definitely a different feel when you're not there yeah. with all your college friends on the bus to and from St. Simon's, you know. Classic, classic. I remember just bawling, crying one year we lost on the way back to St. Simon's. So I was just so upset. We always called it the Trail of Tears. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the drive home from 16 to 
441, whatever it was, we just did the trail of tears. And I said, and, until we win 17 out of 20, I'm not going back, which maybe we will do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Law school, you went to Texas. Right. University Austin. of Texas. Are you, are you yeah. go horns too? You know, I was because my sister was a cheerleader there during the time Vince Young was there and the, during the national championship. But we had a sugar bowl where we played Texas. Um, the dogs did a few years ago. And so my whole family thought it'd be a great, you know, fun thing, family divided to go to the sugar bowl. And it was just such a horrible experience because I thought that Texas was such sore losers. Right, right. But now, I mean, I, I cheer the, uh, for them because of my sister, but I, I don't really have any affinity towards Texas. I mean, they should be better. They they should. They have no they, excuse. They should be better. And they have access to all the best players in Texas. All the best players. They have all the money in the world. Good brand. Great college town. So give me the tail of tape. Austin versus Athens. I mean, I liked – I think how I did it was right, where I loved – Athens for college because it's a small town you know it feels very manageable the downtown area you know I think is accessible you know even if you're not overage um and my sister I could see because she was an undergrad there when I was there for law school it was just a totally different experience huge school huge town you know things were not as concentrated at like the Greek you know houses and then downtown it was just much more spread out so in law school is great because you know you're 21 you can go to the bars and everything really really fun um but definitely a very different undergrad experience I think just it's a much bigger school now that makes sense and I've gone to Austin a few times as an adult and always had a good time. You know, what's the tagline? Stay weird, Austin. Yeah. They like to say. It's totally different, though, than when I was there, like, whatever, 20 years ago or something. Um, I mean, it it's grown so much. Back then, it was, like, barbecue restaurants and Tex-Mex restaurants. Um, and now it's, like, the food capital of the, the world or something. I mean, but it was really fun. A lot of good music and everything, too. So, and, and a good football team at that point. Yeah. Well, we got you back. To Atlanta after law school, we didn't move to Dallas or one of those Midwestern cities. No, I, I always knew I wanted to come back to the Southeast. My family was still in um, Tennessee at the time, and I wanted to be able to go to the dogs, uh, see the dogs play on the weekends. So You joined up with King & Spalding, right? Yes. Um, biggest law firm in the city. Uh, biggest law firm, what, Southeast? I mean, I, I don't... Yeah, it's one of yeah one of the biggest law firms I think in the country. Um, but it was a it was a great opportunity. I mean, I think you know sometimes I um, look back and think, oh, should I have gone to Georgia for law school instead of Texas? And but I would never have gotten my job at King and Spalding if I had gone to Georgia because it's so competitive. You know, to go to King and Spalding from Georgia at Texas, I was like there were like a couple people that were interested in coming back to Atlanta. So um, it was a great opportunity. I was there for eight and a half years. Um, but it was a very um, good opportunity as a trial. It was a very unique opportunity for somebody who wanted to be a trial lawyer because the tort team was doing this tobacco litigation in Florida where there were, it was a class action that had been decertified. So there were 5,000 pending lawsuits at the time and the tobacco companies didn't settle. So you knew you were going to trial and they were, you know, there were trials. Just one after the next. Yes. And so it, you know, they needed bodies um, to go to these trials. And so I ended up going to 24 trials. So what does that look like? You got a trial team of a senior attorney that is running more than one case or more than one of these, or, or they have a whole like trial team that they sending people out and then you got a second chair and a third chair like what does that look like yeah paralegals everybody we were um like national council for certain counties in florida um so, so luckily we had miami uh fort lauderdale you know west palm good good time yeah. you know um i spent a lot of that time in miami so i didn't complain about that people would say like well are you are you thinking about moving to miami i'm like why would I move there when I can just go there just go on there. an expense account, right. you know, and not have to pay hey, for it? Hey, using that big brain yeah, of yours. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so what are some takeaways from from working at a, at a big firm like that, exposed, exposure to those kind of cases and trials that you have now taken with you to, to what you're doing, your personal job we're doing now? The, the biggest thing that I tell people is that it made me fearless in the courtroom because when you're going into the courtroom representing probably 
like the most hated corporation in the country. Um, th- there can be no facts in any of these car wreck cases or whatever that are as scary as going to like claims of youth marketing, you know? And so to me, it's given me a really thick skin and made me like, yeah, whatever. I know that's a bad fact, but I'll try that case, you know? And- that's really interesting. And that's a great answer. And I hadn't thought about it that way before. I mean, you really were defending who people hate the most. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and you had to, I mean, so what are the, what are the, like when you, when you enter a trial like that, what are the theories defending the tobacco companies about why the jury should find for you guys? Well, there was very specific, there was a very specific kind of formula in those cases because it was a class action that was decertified. So there were findings that, I mean, so it was very kind of complicated legal stuff, but basically they had to prove that they were a class member, which had questions. The, the main one was, did addiction cause their injury or death? And so our main defense was always, if you can quit, there's no way it caused it because you always have free choice to quit. And so that would be where it centered around was, the, did the person try hard enough to quit um, to prove that they were like hopelessly addicted or you know not? So how do you cross-examine a very sympathetic figure that is either you know, the family's lost somebody or they are deathly sick because of the product? Like, What's the approach? And and I did learn a lot about that because I think in the beginning maybe I was too aggressive in 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 some of those cross examinations. Um, but you have to be very delicate. But you have to just I think keep just like any of our cases where you know you have to kind of step aside from the sympathy factor when you're cross examining the other side, right? Because I think a lot of juries do have sympathy for the defendants in our cases if they're individuals in a car wreck case or some kind of family mom and pop type company. Um, but I think just keeping focused on like whether or not, you know, acknowledging the the sympathy factor, but then trying to keep the jury focused on, you know, what are the real issues that they have to decide and these other things don't really come into play. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I still struggle every time I cross examine somebody to make sure I'm as kind as I can um, because I get pissed off when they're making these evasive answers yeah. and they're lying and you know they're lying. You're like, dude, this isn't a hard question. Like, answer it. You know, you know the answer. Yeah. They just won't. And I'm like, Josh, take a deep breath. You know, you don't want to lose your mind. You don't want to get it's It's difficult. But yeah. th- what you said makes total sense. Like That's really good, really good training. Um, yeah. And actually, kind of interestingly, two of my trials have been against dead dis- defendants. And one, this recent one was against a guy who they just told the jury that he had had a stroke, which I then, object, you know, tried to fix later on. But right. You know, so the sympathy factors were present even in cases where I didn't think anything would come didn't into play. Come yeah. Into play. Sure. So I think you do have to acknowledge those things and say, you know, we are so sorry for these people, but the law specifically allows for recovery even under these circumstances. Right. It still though baffles me that juries don't realize their insurance companies on the other side. Do you think they don't? I think they do. Every jury I've talked to recently has been surprised that they're insurance companies. Really? See that's not that's not what I get when I talk to them afterwards. Ugh. There's usually one one person on there that educates them is like, guys, this is what's going on. Yeah. No, and no, not on my recent juries. And I don't know if they're just trying to say that to just say, oh, we didn't, you know, we follow the law. But most of my recent juries are like, especially against these estates, you know, I'm like, but you were still willing to like find $240,000 against this woman estate. And for people that are listening that are, that are wondering what we're talking about, when you when you try a case from after a car wreck and someone gets injured, the, the jury never hears there's insurance involved. Um, the case is against John Smith not against State Farm. There's never a mention of how much insurance or if insurance is available. So Bethany's experience has been recently that jurors are not connecting the dots and they don't know there's there's money uh, from an insurance policy behind it. I've had opposite experiences. Maybe it's just the jury, maybe it's the county, who knows, but that is a big obstacle that we face is that you're not awarding money against John Smith coming out of his pocket or coming out of 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 his paycheck. He's got insurance behind it. Right, because I think that the the fear and what I've seen is that people think that insurance money has already paid, and we're going after more from the individuals or the you know company. Now, in my experience, it hasn't kept the verdicts down, which is crazy to me because you'd think it was. But I mean, obviously, we don't know what they would have awarded had they thought there was insurance. How do you get into to a courtroom so the jury thinks that you're only there because the other party was doing something wrong? And that you're not the reason why everybody's been called into court because you're greedy, your client's greedy, and you're the one that's creating all this. That's what I think a lot about. 
I do too. And I mean, you know, usually I'll just start right off the bat, um, you know, in my opening saying basically we're here after four years because they've refused to pay the medical bills. Um, you know, and I think that that is you know, I think that's the most common sense, like understandable thing from the perspective. I think that pain and suffering can be a different issue. But to say, you know, they haven't even paid their medical bills yet. Um, and when they're admitting, apparently they're admitting liability, but they're just refusing to pay your medical bills because they say, you know, we're asking for too much. Um, and they're, you know, so they're refusing to take responsibility. Um, I do a lot of times in my cases, the difference between responsibility and accountability or responsibility and accountability versus, you know, accepting liability and saying, you know, just when you can't, saying sorry is not enough. Um, for true accountability, you actually have to make up for the harms and losses that you cause. Yeah, that's very good. And again, for people that are listening, we can't go in there and say, you know, we offered to sell this case for X amount of dollars and they turned it down. Like we can't talk about settlement discussion. So I'm always thinking to myself, like, how can I get this jury knowing that we're not the bad guys here. I will say, though, what I've run into recently, which I do think is a pretty good defense argument, is when I put out that we're going to be asking for millions of dollars in this case, the defense stands up and says, well, now you know why we're here. Mm. is because they're asking for million dollars, millions of dollars in a case that we think is only worth $100,000. Um, and so, but I think, you know, I do think it's important throughout Wadir opening, throughout, you know, your entire case, you were kind of reiterating that number so that they're not as shocked at the end that you're going to ask for that. You do a lot of talk on voir dire. That's, I know you, you spend a lot of time prepping for it and thinking about it. Um, a lot of people tell you that's the most important part of the case. What do you think? I do think that that is the most important part of the case. And I mean, a lot of people, um, I think, you know, I come from the defense perspective um, where we had like jury consultants and everything where we, you know, obviously representing a tobacco company caused challenges where you're most important. So you were deselecting the jurors. Basically, you were trying to set up arguments with the court that you said this person said they can't be fair. Um, and that to me, that is much more important than preconditioning or trying to try your case in voir dire. Now, what I've come up with um, is this thing what I call cause and commitment, where I try to blend the two, where I put out my worst facts, say, does, it, does this going to make any of you not be able to decide the case? And then once I get the people off for cause that I think are troublesome, then I say, now can everybody else commit to not to have right. an open mind about that Smart. fact Smart. and putting that in context? And I do think that that's worked well for me in my in my trials. Are you one of these people that just trust your gut when it comes to making those last few decisions no, on strikes? I, I mean, I do trust my gut, but I've made I every case I recently I've had one juror. I'm like, I made the wrong decision on that person, and that person's like the one who ends up basically holding down. It's impossible to get right. I mean, especially with with the amount of time we're given. I mean, the judges are kind of shrinking it. Oh more yeah, and more and more. hour. You can't talk to everybody. You can't talk to everybody. Um, and then what about? Are, are you good at predicting who the foreman's going to be? Pretty good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How about closing statements uh, or, or opening statements versus closing arguments? How do you view you know each one of those phases of the trial? I mean, I'm a big David Ball damages fan, um, so I pretty much use his outline that he says about talking about rules of the road, telling the story of the case, why we're here, putting things in context. I'm also a big Keith Mitnick fan, so I kind of combine the two. So, I mean, opening, you know, obviously you try to argue as much as you can with the, the evidence will show. Um, and, but I do try to kind of like lay out and, and, you know, my biggest thing is preempting any defenses. I mean, the, the trials that I've had um, are all pretty challenging cases. And so I take most of my time in the opening to try to tell the story of the case, uh, why, you know, you should find against the defendants, but then a lot to try to explain and put in context. That's what Mitnick talked about, eat the bruises. Yeah. Right? Don't eat the bruises. Don't, yeah. don't, I mean, that's what I mean. don't, don't yeah. eat the bruises. That's what right. I mean. Right, right, right. Yeah. Defense is like, look at defense's favorite facts and, you know, really try to put those in context so that you can, what I, what I call either, um, uh, you know, accepting kind of or weaponize, embracing or weaponizing those things um, by turning it around. Yeah. One thing you also talk about is is embracing that bad fact or the defense thinks is a bad fact and turning it into a positive. Exactly. Yeah. So you have any good examples of doing that recently when your trials? Um, so I had an example of, um, in a neck surgery case, we, two weeks, so I got brought in, um, you know, a couple, like a month before the case, um, was with, tried to, it was Steve Newton, who's out of, um, Petrie City. And, um, we found out like two weeks before the trial 
that there were there was a prior neck injury um, that hadn't been disclosed that she had actually been in a wreck where she it was so bad she had like a C collar on to the hospital and everything. Well, so the, obviously the defense hid this and thought this because they thought this was like the best fact ever, and so we ended up turning it around on them because there was a CT scan. And then there was an MRI scan, you know, a CT scan at the time and then an MRI scan at our time. Well, because we kind of waited until closing to really highlight this when we could say what we wanted to say, we just put up the CT scan and MRI where no doc, they didn't call a doctor or anything. So they didn't, there was no explanation that maybe more shows up on the MRI than CT scan, but basically showed that the MRI scan after the wreck was much worse than the CT scan. And so basically said, the whole reason they hid this was because it was it bad, was for, bad them. for them. Right. They didn't ask any of the right. doctors about this. They didn't ask her about it. Don't you Love think it. if it was helpful for them, they would have asked the doctors about they it? And brought somebody in from God knows yep. where. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. That's um, cool. Isn't, so, it, isn't, isn't it fun when that happens? Oh, totally fun. Yeah. Yeah. So we got a million dollars, $1.05 million on an $84,000 uh, neck surgery. Case. Now, now your firm, five years ago, you started to today. Uh, talk about like kind of how you staff it, what your philosophy is. Um, what people kind of associate you with case-wise, that kind of stuff. Oh, man, I'd love for, you know, help on the staffing and the philosophy. I mean, that is really, I feel like, as a solo practitioner, the hardest thing to really do is is find good staff um, and keeping good staff. Um, you know, I think I'm spoiled having come from King and Spalding because I had eight and a half years of being ingrained, like, a certain caliber of quality of work um, that was expected and, you know, when I came over to this side five years ago, my intention was to bring the same level of representation that, you know, Fortune 50 companies get and bring that to the injured individual. And so I never wanted to say, oh, well, now I'm just a plaintiff's lawyer, so my clients don't expect so much. I always have wanted to strive to have my work, all my work product, everything be just, you know, perfection, really. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's been really, really hard in order to try to keep staff who are um, invested as much as in your firm and in the quality of work that you um, that you produce. And luckily, I found you know one paralegal who's been with me now for two years, and she's awesome, Yvonne. She's I said my ride or die, you know. Now I mean, she works her butt off to because she is invested in the, the future of our case, or our, our firm. And so it's just you know a matter of trying to find those people who share that entrepreneurial spirit that we do and think, okay, this is my firm too, and I can grow. There's a lot of opportunity. I can grow with them. Um, I like how, how, uh, how she's included in your, in your videos on Instagram and social media. Oh, yeah, yeah. Melissa, who's, who's my paralegal, who's awesome, just doesn't like that. I mean, I've, a couple of times I've gotten her to do it, but she's just more shy and she's cool as can be, but she's like, not my thing. But you got all sorts of all people of, in there. Yeah, they. I mean, I have um, I have had, I, mean, I think it's because when they get hired, they know that that's a big that, that, thing. That's part of what yeah. you do, yeah. Um, but yeah, I've had good luck with people. I mean, they're, everybody does such a great job in the videos, but obviously we share the same social media person and I think she makes it easy for us too. Yeah, so, so we do. Kayla, um, hoping she could be here today. She couldn't. Love you, Kayla. Uh, that's... We, we, we both use her to our videos. I get lots of compliments on them, not because of me, but just because of the professional way they come out. I know you do too. So um, when you made that decision three, four or five years ago, I mean, a long time, um, at least, I mean, at least three years ago, right? Start doing uh, those videos? Right. During COVID. Yeah. So now it was, it was probably in November of 2021. So it was about a year and a half ago. Oh, I think you've been doing it longer than that because you started doing it before I did. And I've been doing it, I feel like, for maybe maybe it just feels that way. I know, I know. But, but let's talk about your approach to, all, to those videos. You're doing them a couple times a week. You know, I think you, like me, have transitioned from like kind of the longer form to the yes. shorter. Um, so kind of take through the development of how you've viewed yourself, social media marketing, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny because before the, like before COVID, I guess it was not 2021, 2020. So it was like November, 2020. So, um, before COVID, I was not into social media at all. Like not even personally, really. Um, I relied solely on personal interaction and personal networking, going to lunch. And then you realize, oh, well, how am I going to get cases from people if I can't interact with them. So then I started focusing on social media, trying to build it up. I mean, it's so funny looking at some of those first videos that I did. Like the first video I did, I was like asking people like, what did you think? They're like, well, I just don't think you should read 
read what you're saying off off the screen or whatever. And I'm like, I wasn't. <laughs> and I was even a broadcast news major. Yeah. And so you'd think I would be good at that. Right, and, right. Um, so now what I've, what I've found is that what works best for me, I don't know about you, but pretty much I just come up with topics that morning. <laughs> and then I just talk off the top of my head. I figure the topics that I choose are things I'm able to just talk no, about. Wow, that's right. Yeah. And so to me, it works much better like that, much more conversational um, to just kind of have a topic in mind and then just kind of shoot the video. Like It's only like 20 seconds or something now or 20 or 30 seconds. But yeah. knowing and accepting the reality that most people are not watching the whole thing. Um, Which is a humbling thing, right? <laughs> because the, the insights that Instagram and the TikTok and these places give you and the data, they, they take everything. And they show you people that drop off after 10 seconds or 20 seconds or 30 seconds. No one makes it to the end. No. I mean, my, actually, no, my mom Your makes mom. it to the end. My, my dad probably. Yeah, he, she makes it to the end. Um, I don't make it to the end half the time. I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, but I don't, I've kind of transitioned to wondering if it's really the point for people to make it to the end. Or if it's just to hear and see and relate and understand that you're in the space, you know what you're talking about, and you're out there and you're recognized. I think so. I think that is. Now, I will say that, and I've like talked about this before um, on different like social media webinars, but I do see a difference between Instagram and LinkedIn. So Instagram, I think it's more important to just kind of have your face, you know, be out there just recognizing your face. It's really just more brand recognition. LinkedIn, which is where primarily most of my referrals have come from um, is much more focused on the substance. And I do feel like on that people watch my full videos and they comment on them and stuff. So I, I you know, I do still try to be helpful in them because I, I, I'll just go and post like, I don't know if you do this, but I just go and post on my own on LinkedIn and not everything. Cause it's not all applicable, but a lot of the trial prep tips and different mm -hmm. tips like that um, for referring attorneys, um, I, I post on there. And I do feel like people appreciate that. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. I'm much more deliberate in thinking, is this a LinkedIn-appropriate topic? Yes, than me is too. This some, like Instagram, I feel like it's like, whatever, yeah. do it. Like I posted one today about the Lincoln Lawyer TV show. Oh. Like I yeah. wouldn't put that on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, I'm much more deliberate about, is this something that's appropriate or not? Now, TikTok, have you gone that direction yet? I tried to, but you have to post every day. And it's much more, I feel like the, the topics are much more like for general mass. And I just had a hard time coming up with that every day. You know, I had the biggest one I had was how to get out of jury selection or, and the other one was how to get out of a traffic ticket for cell phone use. So like, you know, I couldn't, but I couldn't kind of continue coming up with those types of, yeah. you know, um, cause I do think that the Instagram videos are not appropriate for a TikTok. They're, it's a very different, you know, audience. So TikTok, I've been doing it for maybe a couple months, Kayla suggested and got me to do it. And I'm, I'm glad she did because I want to try it out. But the best video I got, the best traction I got, comments and views and all, whatever it is, TikTok took it down. Oh, what was it about? Yeah, I'm like, TikTok, I've been trying for months here, man. Like, come on. It was a, it was a video uh, from one of my cases. Mm -hmm. We got the um, surveillance video from a gas station. Mm. And it showed my guy walking from the pump inside and he got run over. Mm. And so you see him get hit. And so I, I did a series on the case and how we won it and got the video and all this kind of stuff. It was, I thought, good stuff. Pat yeah. On the back. And it created like a lot of conversation because people were like, he meant to get hit or what are you talking oh, about? Yeah. All that kind of stuff. And so TikTok said it was too graphic because it showed somebody getting hit by a car. Mm. So I'm like, even when I went on TikTok, they just take it down. So I don't know. That's crazy because of all the things that of are on. Of all the things that are on there. <laughs> But uh, it, it, now, it is. next time you have to do a makeup tutorial and then you'll get or an un unboxing of gifts. Get um, ready with me. Yeah. 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 So the videos talk to me about how many takes I asked Joseph this Wilson. He was on a couple weeks ago. Uh, I asked him, you know, be honest, like how many takes is it to, to get a video that you can publish? You're in the trust tree here with the millions of listeners. Truthfully, you can ask Kayla like one time usually. Really? I mean, there's a couple like every so often I'll have to do it twice, but I have zero patience for like I. I kind of despise media day, even though I love seeing Kayla. I'm like, let's get it done as quick as we can, you know? Um, and I'm usually like, yeah, I think that was fine. That's good enough. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've gone from 
this needs to be great to this needs to be good to this is good enough. Yeah, yeah. Let's just, let's just let's just do it. But I there's plenty of days where I get tongue tied. I'm just like. Kayla, I don't have it today. I know, I know. We 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 do um, get lots of comments on the bloopers videos. I'm like, that's so funny. Like, the, I don't even know these people, and they're getting such joy out of the bloopers. I mean, that is a fun one. I mean, you do a good job. She's done out a few a few for me. People, it makes you real. Pe- people like looking at that stuff. No, it's all good. Now, branding is something else that you and me have talked about. Like, you, have a, you had a new logo a couple years ago. Um, talking about like, what do you want people to recognize you and your firm with? Yeah, I mean, uh, my logo uh, has uh, been the lioness since I've started because when I was starting my firm, I was trying to think of, um, you know, what I wanted to embody in my firm. And I first came up with my motto, which was compassionate counselor, tough advocate, because I think, you know, especially as females, we have the opportunity to kind of show both sides where we can be compassionate with our clients and we can be sympathetic and empathetic. But we can also be, you know, tough adversaries. And it's really important for me to kind of show both of those aspects. And so um, I came up with the lioness because I found out that, you know, the, the lioness is actually the one who hunts for all the food um, and also takes care of the young. So kind of that, that aspect. So that's how I came up with um, that. And so that's what I want to be known for is, um, you know, with my clients being, um, very compassionate. Uh, but then, you know, I, I kind of like when attorneys from the defense side want to say, you know, oh gosh, I've got a case with Bethany. She's so difficult. Yeah. Well, not difficult. She's going to, she's going to (laughs) work. Yeah. She's, she's not going to just roll over now. Mm -hmm. Uh, being a female plants attorney, like there's not a ton Right? I mean, there's more and more actually there, all the time. There's which I'm more and more. All the, see, yeah. yeah, I guess I said that wrong. I mean, there's more and more, but still, I feel like the perception is it's a male driven industry. I agree. So we need more and more folks like you. So t- tell me your thoughts on like women in this profession and. Yeah, I mean, I do think that we're seeing more and more. I'm on a women's listserv, and it's great. Of course, like, I mean, compared to, like, uh, the GTLA listserv, you know, we put out a question, and, of course, like, if you've got, like, 50 women on it, you get answers, like, you know, immediately. Um, but, you know, I think that um, I think that we have, um, you know, a great opportunity in this area of practice because I think that we can access emotions easier than most males can and that it comes more naturally and it may be to a jury looks more natural and not um, kind of put on if, you know, you're trying to convey the emotional aspect of trials. Now, I'm not saying obviously men can do that too, but I think sometimes it becomes a little bit more naturally Plus, I think that, well, I, I believe in male-female trial teams. I think that that's the best dynamic um, because you don't know who's on the trial, you know, on the jury, and then you can, you know, kind of capitalize on both. But sometimes for some sensitive crosses, like you were saying, like being able to stay kind and soft and, um, you know, it's, it's harder if you're like cross-examining like a sympathetic f- female or something, like especially in, uh, I had a recent MedMal case that was supposed to go to trial that settled before and we were we had the physician's assistant who was a very likable young female and it was a male attorney that I was trying the case with and I was like truthfully I just I think I need to cross-examine her because Mm -hmm. I just think he you know he was kind of aggressive I mean I can be aggressive too but just the dynamics I think it would look like maybe he was beating up on her so um, I think that we have some advantages as females in the PI world. Yeah, that's good. That's good stuff. And I think the, the male female dynamic at trial, that makes a lot of sense. And figuring out who might be best for this issue, mm-hmm. who's best for that is, 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 is a good thing. Um, another another thing that, that you're known for is working with head injury cases and concussions and um, brain injury stuff. That's a big part of what you've been doing and, and doing a hell of a job at it. The most recent trial was, was one of those, right? So um, talk about like those cases, the challenges. Uh, brain injury cases are different, right? I mean, there's not a broken bone. There's not necessarily something you can see on film. There's not a surgery that happens, uh, but you're in the middle of it. So, yeah, I think that they are difficult cases because they're in these invisible injuries and they're diagnosed and treated all based on subjective symptoms by the client. And that is, you know, a haven for defense counsel and insurance adjusters. Like that's right where they want to be because that's the, the whole you know, defense tactic in these PI cases are to try to 
say these people are making things up, which plays into a pre-existing bias or preconceived notion that, you know, jurors, a lot of jurors come in with, right? And so it just goes right to that point. And so they're very, very difficult cases, I feel like, to settle prior to trial um, for their full value. Um, You know, so kind of how I got into this was in 2019, um, another lawyer, Betty Davis, and I tried a TBI case um, and got a $5.5 million verdict where we were able to show that this was a horrible injury to um, our client. And he was 50-some years old, and he was – basically an elderly man who would be living out the rest of his days with just, a, you know, um, a decreased mental capacity that is just out of proportion to his young age. Um, and so from that, then I got, you know, a number of these cases. And so, you know, it it's very, one of the things that it makes it very difficult is a lot of these people still work. <laughs> In my recent trial, Um, It was a 26-year-old who um, was injured, and he still worked. He got promoted. He got bonuses. He got a raise. And he completed his master's in public health, all while having the brain injury. Isn't isn't that wild, though, that someone who's doing that is going to be attacked for it? And that's exactly how I what I said. And and that's that's when I when I hear that from the defense, which I mean I guess that's their position, right? Like if you're that brain injured, how could you do these things? Yeah. I want to say to myself, well, if he wasn't doing anything, you'd be saying to the jury like this guy sitting around milking it. So you can't you can't win. Yeah. In the last in the last trial, I specifically used the mitigation of damages uh, jury instruction that the defense had asked for requested, and so I didn't object. And I said, look, you're told under the law he has to mitigate his damages. He could have quit his job and sat back and said, well, this case is going to pay me. I'm going to collect money for lost wages. I'm going to try to go on disability. I said, we don't have a lost wages claim because we're not asking you for that. But you heard evidence from his supervisor, from his professors, that he had to work a lot extra, you know, a lot harder to do the same thing he'd been able to do easily before. And we had good before and after witnesses that were able to sell that to the jury because otherwise I think it would have been a little bit hard for them to understand. But I do, I mean, I do think that decreased the value. I mean, they gave 1.2, but I do think that if he hadn't have been able to work, it would have probably been higher than that. So the fact that he was able to continue his job, you know, helped, but at least didn't convince them he didn't have a brain injury. Right. But what, what you said about the before and after witnesses, that's what I found to be the most important mm-hmm. piece, right? I mean, people want to hear not necessarily from the wife or from the son or the daughter because, you know, everybody thinks they've got, you know, the dog in the fight, but the, the, the manager at work, you know, yeah. the friend they've known forever, um, you know, people that can really see the difference between, you know, day before wreck and what's happened since. Yeah. And it was funny because a couple cases, trials ago, um, it was a broken hand case where we had an argument that there was some permanent injury to it that she couldn't use her hand as much. And so, you know, there's all these, you know, talks and everything, and Joe Free gives it on the speedy trial, right? Okay, how do you, you know, Move make it on. as efficient as possible? So, I mean, we, we brought three before and after witnesses. We brought her sister, we brought a friend, um, and somebody else, I can't remember. Um, but like, two friends and, and the sister or something. Oh no, the doctor, the doctor. So then the jury tells us, you needed more. We would have, we'd love to hear from more. Yeah, right, you needed right, more. Right, right, right. Um, And so, you know, <laughs> so then I wasn't making the same mistake in this trial. So in this trial, I had 10. Um, and, you know, the judge was kind of like, I mean, this is going to get ridiculous. I'm going to I'm gonna have to cut this off at some point. And I'm like, well, Your Honor, they're only 10 minutes long. I was going to say, how, how long? Did it be? Yeah. I, 10, I, 10 minutes and most, said, get them all and get them out. Right. And I said, they each have a different perspective on him. And she's like, well. But anyways, I think it was so important because you heard, I mean, their whole thing was he, all, he had all these pre-existing things that this it wasn't the brain injury that caused it. So I needed corroboration that this was the point that he changed. And it also puts the defense in this weird box where they've got to decide, am I going to cross-examine these yeah. people that you know are coming in to tell their story? Like, Was there any meaningful cross-examination that took place? Well, yeah. I mean, they tried to cross-examine the people on the pre-existing things. Well, did you know he had another rep? Did you know he had HIV? Did you know he had a thyroid tumor? Did you know he had this? Did you know he was still working? Did you know he completed his master's? So they tried to, like, kind of um, reiterate their points, and the people were like, yeah, and it wasn't until this that he changed, or yeah, and he worked extra hard to be able to do that. Got to be careful from the defense side because the last thing you want to do is like the random person that's coming, not random, of course not random, yeah. but like beating up on them and like, did you know this? Did you know that? 
I don't know. I always felt that that was a very slippery slope to walk for the defense side. But you mentioned the goal of, of trying five to eight cases a year, which if you can do that, bravo. To, to do that requires you being called in, I imagine, like as, as what's it called, parachute counsel coming in kind of the end to, to yeah. help somebody. So is that part of what as- you're doing too, assisting somebody whose case they've worked up, trials in a week or two weeks or a month, like – hey, Bethany, I need you to kind of help. Is that something you're doing too? Yes, yeah, where I'm associated. Um, yeah, and and it's not just on like, you know, non-complicated cases. One was a $30 million medical malpractice trial in 2019 that I came in three weeks before. Recently in the fall, it was a dental malpractice case um, that uh, I, was, I was brought on about three or four weeks before. Um, I think I have a... I'm able to do that because that's how it was set up at King and Spalding with the tobacco trials is that there would be a whole team that would work up the cases and then the trial team would be assigned and usually not until a month before trial. So you're used to coming in because a lot of people, they'd freak out. Like, like what's the checklist of getting up to speed on years and years and years of the stuff and hundreds of pages and thousands of pages of documents, but something you're, you're comfortable I was specifically you're, you're, you're trained on, yeah, on right, right. And I, and I love... I love trying cases with people. I love working with people. I give, I think, pretty reasonable uh, referral. F- you know, I don't, I don't ask for, uh, you know, a huge referral fee to do that. If I, it was just like one week of my, you know, life or whatever, um, I just, I like trials. Like it, so. yeah. what, what is the concept of like a fresh set of eyes looking at a file? I also think that that's very important in, in, in both that medical malpractice trial and the dental malpractice trial. I think it was very important with the person who had lived with the cases for six years. I mean, the malpractice trials, you know, the cases take so long. And so, especially because I'm not as um, experienced in, with medicine and I feel like these other attorneys that have brought me in are the ones that are like steeped into the, the subject matter. And so, what? and this was how I did tobacco, um, on the tobacco trials too, was that I was kind of like the medical person. So. Um, I've done for a long time now um, what I think is a specialty kind of in being able to really think through complicated medical issues and how to bring that to a layperson, how to make that, distill that down. You know, I mean, I'm never going to be the one who's going to know all the medical terms. I mispronounce them in the trial even, although that does seem endearing to them, to the jury. You play it off the right <laughs> way. I've done it too. Um, they do like that. Yeah. But, um, but I really enjoy that. And I mean... You know, I have some medical malpractice cases of my own, but they're such tough cases. But I do just really enjoy that challenge of, and that's maybe that's why I love the TBI cases too, is that challenge of bringing really complicated medical issues and trying to distill that down for a layperson. Isn't that the goal? Like, and, and people that can do that are the ones that are successful, like you, which is take a complicated set of facts that have been litigated for five years and make it something that's digestible for a jury. Right. In, a in way, five in, days. In five days. Like Jeff Reed says, speedy, 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 speedy. It's like that's that's not easy to do. So I love the idea of having a new a new set of eyes come in that's not as quite invested is the wrong word, but just been in the weeds for so long and every word and every page and every document, like you yeah. need a fresh set of eyes. And I also think that there are a lot of um, attorneys out there that would love to try a case, but are feel like they're not experienced enough to do it. And so unlike some attorneys that just take it outright referrals, you know, oh, okay, well, you give me your case and I'll go try it with you. I think to a lot of attorneys, it is attractive to be like, okay, well, you come in, you kind of take over, but I'll be second chair. My name will be on the case. I'll get the trial experience, you know, and I think that's attractive to a lot of either less experienced trial, you know, people that haven't been in the courtroom as much or even younger attorneys. And I offer that up all the time to people. I'm like, hey, I'll just come in and sit there with you if you want me to, you know. That's good. So you clearly love trial. Do you watch it on TV? Do you follow it? When When I mean by that is not TV shows, but this Murdoch trial. I've been, I mean, I mean are, are you just like a junkie? Like, I got to see it because it is compelling TV, right? Oh, my God. Are you yeah. all over it? I've, I've actually been listen, listening to it on the podcast, um, you know, like every day. So I'm very into it. I've, I've been listening to the Murdoch Murders podcast for over a year now. I think yeah. there's like crazy amount of episodes. But So, so for those that aren't familiar, you know, there's there's a trial. So t- today is March the 2nd. Um, Closing arguments just finished. I mean, closing arguments literally just finished. And double homicide, double murder, a guy named Alec Murdoff, uh, South Carolina, accused of killing his wife and his son um, in July of 2021. And it's it's just crazy. I mean, the family is like 
you know, 100 plus years in the county and the city. They've been, you know, run, they run the law, solicitors. It's just, you can't make this stuff up. Mm-mm. So tell me, like, what are you thinking? Like, what's your take on the trial? You've been listening to the podcast, been watching. Um, it's crazy. Yes, I think it was key. And I, I kind of wondered what they would have done that the court allowed all of the evidence of the financial crimes to come in. So as Back's you know, story is that the motive that the... Uh, prosecution has given for the murders is that he had been stealing millions and millions of dollars from his clients for 20 years. Um, He's a personal injury attorney, the same thing that you and I do, and settlements would come in, he would take some off the top, he would take from judgments, he would not report this, whatever. Stealing money from clients. I don't understand how he, the clients weren't signing the the uh, distribution statement. So I'll just tell you, if any of you ever have a personal injury case, make sure you get a statement from your attorney that says where every dollar is going and you sign that. That's what I always make sure I tell every penny where, you know, the client, every penny of where that's going. Sorry um, to throw you off. No, no. But um, so yeah. So anyway, so basically he'd been stealing. Um, and so it, what the judge didn't determine until the midway through the trial, they had a three day proffer, a hearing in the middle of the trial where the jury wasn't there where they heard from test- testimony from the witnesses about what they were going to say about this, uh, these financial crimes because he hasn't been tried for them yet. And obviously we know that in both civil and criminal cases, there's rules of evidence that relate to whether something's relevant or whether the unfair prejudice of that um, outweighs the you know probative value or the, the potential relevance. And so the judge, I think the judge has done an awesome job. I've been so impressed with all of his rulings, his, his um, temperament, his composure during obviously what's a huge media circus. Um, but, you know, he found that because, so there, usually you're not allowed to get in evidence in criminal cases or civil cases about other acts to prove that the person acted conformity with or you know like that in this case so for instance in car wrecks you can't get in usually that the person has been in has caused other car wrecks the defendant has caused other car wrecks to show he was at fault for this case so the judge found that the financial crimes because they weren't previous murders you know that they weren't going to say oh well he murdered because he committed these other things that was actually the motive for the murder so it, it ended up being a whole case about the financial crimes I think it had to be um, because motive is something that I think the prosecution was a little soft on. It's like, who wants to kill their wife? Who wants to kill their son? Like, what are the reasons? And as we've come to learn, it's because money. Yeah. Right. I mean, he had this terrible drug habit, um, whacked out of his mind. I don't all know the that time. I believe he had a terrible drug habit. You don't believe that? There's just no way he consumed the amount of drugs he's saying he consumed, and nobody knew about it. He, he is a – so he t- the other thing is he testified, yeah. like which is crazy. Is and you, crazy? You could see him on the I stand. I could not believe it when I, heard, I saw on, that. On, he- on the stand, I mean, he's a professional at this. He's a professional at this. Like, he's a liar, admittedly, and he was he, he, he somehow held it together. Uh, he admits to the drug use. I, I don't I don't see how there's any question. The amount that he, he was taking, of course, it's crazy. I mean, you can't think – milligrams it, a day. You, you can't think anybody can do it, but maybe he was. Well, you, what was interesting about him testifying that I thought that I heard then I thought that was so basically when he testified, he admitted the financial crimes, which will get him as much jail time as this murders. So for some reason, he decided that him testifying and admitting to all these things was worth getting basically going to be he's going to be convicted on all that to get off on this, even though it's the same as he's going to be in, tr- in jail for the rest of his life, no matter what he's going to be, he's going away for his life, no matter what. So exactly. then I, why, you know, it's like, why, I guess he's a narcissist. And I mean, why is it so important to him? Why wouldn't he just not have testified? You know, because he's a narcissist yeah. and because he, he, he's like, I can convince this jury. They can, anyone. and you know what? He might convince one or two people. Yeah. Which is all it's going to take. I mean, you know, in that area, in that region, like there's one or two people that might connect with him. And I think there's a very, very, very good chance that he gets acquitted or there's a hung jury or something. I think people are going to have a really hard time. I think murdering your wife, people understand that. That happens all the time. I think murdering your son, I I think people want to be – I mean, you have to have a really good reason for that. I don't know that they've given that. They've not given it. Um, It's a case of circumstantial evidence, right? I mean, there's no eyewitness. The gun is missing. The clothes have been – cleaned or 
or lost or whatever the crime scene the house has been it was cleaned by the housekeeper like sled the the, the law enforcement division in south Carolina, not their finest day no. and and you know you don't know if that's because of who who he is or who the family is but there's going to be some leaps the jury's going to have to take to meet their burden to, for the prosecution to meet their burden to convict him i i mean part of what i think though i mean they the prosecution has a good argument for like Okay, well, if it's somebody else, or just a vigilante or something, how do they know that just in this small window of time, you, they were going to be there? They weren't supposed to be there, the, the wife and son. They were going to be there, and you were not. And I, what I think is there were two shooters. I think it was Alec and somebody else. And, you know, I don't know. But I, I, I think because it doesn't make sense really otherwise. I mean, I guess Maggie, the wife, was running away when she was shot, but – you know how do you, how do you have two different you know no I agree and I agree and I think that's what the jury ends up with I mean I think that I think that he did it mm-hmm. I think he did it yeah me too I, I, I think everybody knows and 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 and, and ex- like there's no other there's no other explanation like who's the other suspect <laughs> there's not one I know you know and so he did it but I think he's going to get off for it I think that they just I think that the knot wasn't properly tied um, I think he did a good job of covering it up. I mean, I think this is what he's good at. I think that he is a professional kind of con man. Um, I thought was I was interested with the prosecution's use of like GPS stuff and phone data, uh, OnStar. Like that's it, it, people think of that as like CSI type stuff, but it's the way we look at our case a lot of times too. That stuff is available now. I mean, what I saw that really hit home with me was his phone logged a certain amount of steps that he took between like a certain times, like four minutes right after the expected murder time. It's like, what were you doing? What were you running around 200 and something steps? Like, that's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, and I guess they um, they used the visit to the scene yesterday as a way to try to fill that, like that aspect of the evidence is to be able to show them why it was that many steps and everything and the distances between the murder scene and the house and everything. But it is pretty cool stuff. I mean, I think, like you said, it comes into play sometimes in our cases, too. I had a case, um, again, with the the lawyer Steve Newton. It was a dog bite case where he had this whole – it was a person that lied about whether they were home at the time of the the bite. And um, so he used – cell phone data where it pinged and a cell phone expert um, to show that there's no way she could have been home at the time when she says she was, um, that she was, you know, a certain distance away. We still lost the case. But. That's cool. <laughs> but that's cool to do something that, like, I mean, Snapchat, Snapchat in the Murdoch case. Um, that video that, that uh, Paul took, like, right before the murder contra- is what contradicted yeah. what Alex said. So it's like this, all these social media tools – um, we tell our clients, I'm, I mean, I'm sure you do too. Yeah. It's like, be smart about what you post on social media. Yeah. Here's an example. Right. Um, I mean, this was before what right. happened, but the, 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 the idea is that like everything you put out there, people are going to find it and they're going to use it to prove cases. I mean, I had probably one of the worst facts in any case. It was such a sad case. It was a death of, uh, like a 20 some year old kid on a motorcycle. And there was a disputed liability as to whether he was speeding or not through an intersection and there was like a left turn. And so the sheriff's office had found that he was going like 80 or 90 miles per hour. But then we had our own expert who said, actually, no, they did the calculations wrong and he was only going 55 miles per hour, which is the speed limit. But when I initially got the case, um, I we just like Google the name or you know search on Instagram, and his Instagram name was Need for Speed. <laughs> and he had as his picture if I die speeding, no, I'd die with a smile on my face. No. Mm-mm. You couldn't make that up. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. You couldn't make that up. So what did you do? I mean, we, we, got, the, we got all the insurance that was available. Right, right. Yeah, that's, it's like, come on, people, be smarter. I know, I know. I mean, it was so sad because I'm like, he really didn't die from speed. Right. But, but you know, but that, if there was a case, I that's mean, that the first thing they would have thought about. Yeah, that, that's crazy. We see it all the time. I mean, I just tell people, I'm like, just please be smart. I'm not telling you to put your phone away and not participate in social media, but just understand that what you're doing, whether you put it behind privacy walls or not, like it's going to come out. But sometimes I think that people don't even realize the harm that can be done because the defense lawyers will use things that, as innocuous as just pictures of people smiling yeah. or people on trips on or vacation. something and saying, well, they, you know, and, and like my broken hand case, the woman went to 
Wimbledon. And I'm like, well, it wasn't like she was playing in Wimbledon. So, I mean. (laughs) How dare you go do something fun? (laughs) Right. So, I mean, you have to realize that as innocuous as you may think that your photos are, if you have a case where you're claiming you're in pain, then you probably shouldn't be posting a lot of pictures where you're smiling. Well, the other heartbreaking story that's in the news right now is, of course, I mean, Jalen Carter was yesterday, but with uh, LaCroix and Willick recently with, with UJ. I mean, you know, we went from the the high of all highs, back-to-back champions, to the day of the parade, to just, you know, wake up the next morning and hear about the, the tragic one-car accident. And now every day it seems like more facts are coming out. I don't know about you, but I get calls from my friends and texts every day, like, what does this mean? What's going to happen? Um, how, do, how do you kind of wrap your mind around this whole situation? I mean, it's just, it's a horrible tragedy for sure, especially for the entire university. I mean, it's just, it's really, really sad. Um, You know, yesterday when the Jalen Carter stuff came out, I was saying to my dad, I was like, well, he says that he's going to be able to prove that, you know, this wasn't, this, he didn't, there was no criminal actions. And he said, well, yeah, but that's what that Murdoch guy said too. (laughs) (laughs) Look at you bringing it. Good job to your dad taking all this together, coming full circle. Um, yeah, Get him so, on the podcast. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I think that it's just it, – um, it's really sad, and I do think that there's going to be somebody who's – I mean, there's responsible parties for this. And, um, you, know, I, you know, we were talking about, well, would you sue the University of Georgia? I don't know. That'd be tough as a huge dogs fan and a season ticket holder. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the the day after this happened, that lawyer who came out with that press conference for the Willick family and made an ass of himself. And he was saying things that I guess the family didn't even give him the authority to do. He represented maybe an NIL deal or something. Just a yes. bad, bad look. And the discussion then was, are there going to be civil lawsuits filed from this? And, and the answer that time was, we're not going to see the university. We're not thinking about that. And that's right. I mean, that day of, like, that's not what people should be thinking. As the days have gone on, like, I think it's a pretty high probability that we're going to see lawsuits from this. Right. Yeah, because I mean, when you really look at it, there was somebody responsible for why this, you know, twenty-six-year-old or twenty-five-year-old um, person who worked for the recruit, you know, recruiting office or whatever, was driving around drunk these players and was kind of, I mean, although they say, oh, well, she wasn't given permission to it, she obviously had to access to the vehicle. I think we're going to find out that potentially part of her job was to kind of babysit these guys to make sure they didn't get in trouble, you know, out at night. And yet she's the one that's, you know, uh, getting intoxicated herself. There's going to be a whole host of legal issues. And, uh, you know, to the extent that it all is, is is made public and is reported on, like it's gonna be fascinating to see how it all plays it out. It is, but it's really sad for her, I think, and her family because, of course, she looked like a you know sweet girl, you know, um, and it's just I feel badly because it's gonna taint kind of her legacy and and the memory of her when all of these these things are coming out that are are, are very unfavorable to her. Hundred percent, because you know if you if you go through and again. All due respect to everybody involved in this, right? Um, horrible tragedy, and, and that underscores everything that we're saying. But if people are asking, like, what kind of civil cases are available, I mean, I think that most obvious is going to be Willick versus her estate for the insurance money. Not most obvious, but just against her for her for her negligent driving, drug driving, whatever. So she's got insurance, personal insurance. Her family might have personal insurance. Um, and then she is likely going to be deemed an agent of the university, right? Driving a car that was either owned by the university or leased by the university. Was she a permissive user? Probably, you know. Um, and she worked for the university working in for this the university, capacity with the like, football players? Like her, her, the car was probably supposed to be used for recruiting purposes, not for recreational purposes. Does that mean getting them safely to and from the bar at night? I mean, they're not recruits, but they're student athletes yeah and i can i can really imagine that that is something i mean seemingly responsible by georgia to engage in right making sure that these guys have safe drivers so they don't drive drunk themselves but then what oversight is there of these drivers we said all the time when when you, when you turn on espn and you see an athlete leaving a bar two o'clock in the morning drunk driving you're like dude couldn't either you or your family or your team hire somebody yeah. to just drive you home Right? I mean, it's the most simple thing in the world. And so, so to your point, UGA was seemingly being um, ahead of it by hiving these people that their function was to get these players safely to and from. And then if that fails because of her decisions that night, like, that's tough. Mm-hmm. And that's where the lawsuit, I think, really gets 
going. And where and finding out what Georgia or the athletic association or the team knew about whether there was fraternization between these people, whether they knew that these people were going to be hanging out with the players or whether they were supposed to just go to and from picking them up or what. But obviously it's all going to be dependent on what the the knowledge that they had, that Georgia had. It's going to be ton depositions. And you got the university. I I wish I I knew better about what kind of immunity issues arise with them. Um, I think that whatever there is probably is waived to certain insurance amounts. Um, But then you got the athletic association, which I don't know the same immunity you know, applies to them. So, you know, in past lawsuits, I mean, the one Cade Mays filed a couple of years ago, that comes to my mind. He sued the university. He sued the athletic association. I think that's probably what's going to happen here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what about Jalen Carter? I mean, that's the other piece. I mean, you know, Jalen Carter, as of now, it's two misdemeanors, but you can make the argument that his actions, assuming that what they're saying is true, uh, this racing led to the death. And that becomes, I guess, vehicular homicide. Well, and also, I mean, just in a civil lawsuit, you know, a lot of times you're, you know, you're limited to the amount of insurance that somebody has. But if you have somebody with assets, you can go after them personally. And so, you know, we have him with the upcoming draft, you know, whatever money he's going to get from that. And, you know, potentially he's going to have some assets at that point that if, you know, that potentially... People are going to try to go after. On so, the basis so he's a top five pick. He's going to get tens of millions of dollars. And Willock's family says your actions contributed to this death. And the lawsuit could very well include him, too. And then if you're his lawyer, what do you say? It's like if, if he was indeed driving 100 miles an hour and they're racing, like you've made that argument before, I'm sure, yeah. that that's contributed to the death. So it's a mess. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I think Jalen Carr is a good dude. Yeah. I think everybody involved in that and, and is, it's, just, it's just a bad decision. It's poor judgment. It's poor yeah. judgment. Um, it's, I, think, I think it really goes back to they were just feeling invincible that day. You know, they were on just such a high and it's just so sad because obviously they're so young and, you know, not mature enough to really appreciate the consequences of their actions. And it really is just so sad. I also think there's going to be a dram shop case, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, we, we had the video of them leaving the strip club, whatever. Um, they got the alcohol from somewhere. And so the other part of this is, of course, if someone serves you alcohol when they know that you're intoxicated and soon to drive, um, they're on the hook too. So don't be surprised to hear something like that happen as well. Yeah. Again, it's just, it's, you know, UGA and both of us love, love the dogs, season ticket holders. I'm not anymore, but I, I was good. A lot of games like for such a bright you know, time of, of UGA's life for this to happen. It's just, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Interesting. You bring up the dram shop aspect because recently I haven't had that many DUI cases. Um, and, um, but recently I was kind of debating with somebody like, well, when you get a DUI case, a car wreck case, you know, do you immediately file or not? And I think what I've realized is that the, the upside to filing immediately on a DUI case is you can then find out where they got the alcohol to b- figure out. It only makes sense in really catastrophic really type cases, cases. Right. but uh, not like soft tissue or anything. But for, you know, lawyers out there that practice PI, you know, if you have a bad enough case, injury case with a DUI on the other side, it's good to probably go ahead and file so you can find out where they were served or where they bought. I mean, going back to Murdoch, I mean, there was the whole dram shop case against the boat, the bo- boat rack about the the, you know, the gas station the gas that station. served them underage um, alcohol. And um, so they're fighting that that gas station has. I mean, that's cr- a crazy lawsuit, too. They've gone to no end to defend that case. But that can be a very lucrative side of these kinds of cases when you are limited to such like $25,000 policies or whatever, when you have catastrophic type injuries. Totally. I used to, a large part of my of my uh, work I did on the defense side was dram shop cases. Mm. I had a ton of those stuff. Um, and you're right. So when, send them to, to Josh. If well, you no, have. I'm, I'm just saying my, my, your point is exactly right. That if, if the injuries are that bad, um, you absolutely need to file, get that information. Um, because the law is pretty clear. Like if you serve somebody that is knowingly intoxicated and you know they're soon to drive, which can be proved by umpteen million different ways, like you're liable. And I see that happening in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, I see Jalen Carter. I see him getting sued in this case. It's going to be uncomfortable. Um, but as you said, he's going to have assets. So do you think this is going to hurt his, his stock in the draft? 
I think that there, it could it could potentially hurt because especially because if he's involved in cr- a criminal proceeding, like they're gonna pay a bunch of money. We don't even know what he's gonna if he's gonna be available for next season. I mean, they don't. I mean, right now it's just misdemeanors, so potentially, you know. Um, but I, I can't help but think that there are going to be more significant charges that come against him because of this. Yeah, we're kind of locked into our p- p- predictions because of the date that we're recording this. Um, he's being arraigned on April 18th. The draft is April 27th. A lot's going to happen between now and then. I think if the draft was today, I think that he is drafted first, second, third, whatever yeah. he was going to be. I think that ultimately the NFL values talent over anything else. And he's not a bad guy. I mean, he had a bad night. Um, but if there's felony charges, if there's lawsuits, if there's more comes out, like biggest job interview of his life, and this is not yeah. this is not good timing. So no. we, we will be we will be paying close attention to this. Um, been a tough been a tough off season for George. I mean, the Stetson Bennett stuff that's kind of in the rearview mirror now. But he didn't have a very good day either. Yeah, that kind of seems like. I mean, it it actually is kind of funny. I mean, he wasn't driving or anything. It was just public intoxication, right? Yeah, I mean that was a a victimless kind of event. Yeah, him yeah. being an idiot. I mean, why are you trying to run away from the cops? I mean, yeah. like, what is he thinking, you know? You know, the the one thing that I read in the police report, he hid behind, like, a small little brick wall. You know, it's like all this talk of him, you know, his size, and his matter, and that's that's what he gets. So, I mean, I hate it that that's going to be a lasting memory of him as well. Um, I don't think it will be. <sighs> Not a lasting memory, but it's, it is the last memory. Yeah, true. Um, all right. Well, look, Bethany, this was great. We, we packed in as much as we could. We went a little over the hour, but that's okay. Um, I say we get back together again and, and re- rehash how all the stuff plays out, how the, yeah, the Murdoch do thing does. And maybe we can have like a, a ongoing segment about the UGA stuff. And if civil cases do get filed, we can explain kind of the, the who and the why. Yeah. So um, thanks so much for coming. This is great. And Thank you. And uh, by the time this airs, we will be going to your party next week. Uh-huh. So it'll be a good time there. So hopefully you'll post a lot on Instagram, you know, from the party. Hashtag what? Five-year party? Hashtag Bethany? Like, what, what, what is it going to be? What's the tag? I, haven't, I don't know. I haven't come up with it. But yeah, hashtag five years. Hashtag five years. Oh, hashtag sky's the limit. Is that, is that the, the That's li- the kind of the theme, the sky's the limit, because, oh, yeah, because it's in the, you know, it's on the rooftop. And also, we didn't get to mention that I have some billboards around town. So, you know, it kind of goes with that, too. So let's, let's, let's take another minute to talk about the billboards, because that's relatively new, right? Um, so it's about like seven months in, I think, How's at it this going? point. Um, you know, I haven't gotten a single case from it. I've only gotten three calls that specifically mentioned billboards. One was a water park injury. One was a, could I draft a confidentiality agreement for a sex tape? Okay. Um, And one was like an at-fault truck driver in Tennessee. So, you know, it hasn't paid off necessarily on cases, but it's been fun because, so one of my best friends sells billboards for Lamar, and so that's kind of what got me into that, really outside the box of what I was thinking about doing. But it's been really fun because... Everybody I know has like contacted me saying, "Hey, I saw your billboard." I think it's been fun for people that I know. They're like sending me pictures and stuff, you know. So I think that if you say there's not been a direct call for maybe a random person seeing yeah. it, I do think it helps with the overall brand and recognition yeah. and kind of associating you with it. So I'm gonna challenge you a little bit on the <laughs> success of the billboard. Uh, do you ever drive by and you're like, "Oh yeah." Oh, yeah, all the time. There yeah, all What's the up? time, uh, <laughs> for sure. Good stuff. Well, listen, tell people where they can find you. Website, email address, phone number, whatever. Uh, Instagram handle is Schneider Injury Attorney. Uh, website is SchneiderInjuryAttorney.com. Um, you know, email is Bethany at SchneiderInjuryAttorney.com. Um, and 404 800 is our number. So you get a little jingle. Yeah, jingle. jingle? 404 800 Yeah, uh, 360. Love it. Also, to get you a new drink. We were so much talking. But now the drink is in. I didn't even notice. Mine's kind of empty, too. So, all right. Well, good stuff. Cheers is right. Thank you for coming here today. And, and thank you all for listening. Um, you know, give us a rating. Give yeah. us a comment. Go Say, on. Bethany ruled. Uh, go to sportstorts.com and find some old episodes. we got a lot of good stuff there. So, anyway, y'all, thank you everybody for listening, as always. Until next time, keep chopping. <laughs>